Hello again, all my fabulous listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. As usual, all we do here on this show is talk about the delights of sex, sexuality, and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm always delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, trans rights, and of course, my favourite topic of sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, as it does help to keep the mics on. Or you can pop over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to get in touch about the podcast, the Instagram and Twitter is at Glow West Podcast. So we have a very special bonus episode today to have a chat about a very exciting new book, all about the, I would say wonders, but it's not really, um, <laughs> the experiences of sexism, surveillance and social media. And this is a fantastic book called The Visibility Trap, which is out now by the absolutely wonderful Mary McGill. And Mary is a digital culture researcher and journalist. She's a former broadcaster and she's a regular media commentator in Ireland and the UK. Her work has appeared in a range of print, digital and broadcast titles in Ireland, the UK and the US, including British Vogue, Sunday Business Times, Irish Independent and RTE. From 2015 to 2020, she was a Hardiman Scholar at the National University of Ireland Galway, where her doctoral study explored gender, surveillance and selfie practices. And she also has a TED Talk, just to add to her list of massive achievements. So from 2016, her TED Talk, TEDx Talk was entitled Young Women, Narcissism and the Selfie Phenomenon. And that's been viewed almost 300,000 times. And The Visibility Trap is her first book. So Mary, popping that book, Cherry, how are you today? Caroline, that is such a lovely, lovely introduction. Could you do that all the time? So it's possible <laughs> yeah. to hire you and just have you, you know, here's Caroline. Just follow you around. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. It's wild. And I, I like how you got the pop and the cherry in there in the podcast about sex. Well done. You do like There's a lot of puns on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Bring them on. Bring them on. Oh, um, thank you so nice. much. It's, it's all very surreal at the moment. I can but, imagine. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. It's a real highlight, though, getting to chat to people like yourself who, you know, um, you write a book it's much like writing a PhD which I know you have a lot of experience in as well and it's such a kind of a, a solitary process and then it goes out into the world and you kind of hope that people will connect with it and particularly when it's a book of, of non-fiction on you know the kind of current cultural climate and you're hoping you can impart some knowledge that will help people so it's really good to hear you say those kind words about the visibility trap. Thank you. You're very welcome. No, it's a, it's a really exciting to, a book to read. And I kind of I kind of devoured it with a sense of rage, um, just of like how oh, it's so hard to be a woman in the world for a lot of reasons. But it's especially hard to be a woman online and especially to be a sexual woman in the world you know we, we still live in a culture of misogyny and we still like punishing women who dare to be sexual and one of the topics that you cover in the book is the topic of image-based sexual abuse and you talk about Roisin who has been on the podcast before that's episode um 68 for anybody who wants to listen back and she shared her story about being a victim of this but you also talk about um other women who have um appeared in the media and they've been shamed for being sexual when of course the men have been celebrated for being sexual instead so talk to us about how that victim blaming process has really played out in the media and therefore throughout society at the same time yeah so I I mean I, I remember hearing Roisin's story during the summer because I somehow during the pandemic became a committed liveline listener um and I remember standing in my kitchen and I talk about this at the beginning of the book and I'm actually getting chills thinking about it now because it <sighs> it's just too easy to do this to women with these technologies you know it's just too easy to destroy somebody's life all it takes is one photograph or one video um and women suddenly find themselves with very little options open to them now things have gotten better in Ireland we can talk about the legal situation um in a little bit but let's stick with the personal initially because I think that's what's really important here because we're talking about human beings and the right to privacy and dignity and the consent word which we talk about a lot which is great in relation to sex, but somehow we don't seem to have made the connection to the idea that actually consent as a value in human rights law, as a value in research, 
goes to something that includes sex, but actually encompasses the whole human being, which is dignity, the right for people to have dignity and to have control over what happens to their bodies, their image, and all the rest of it. Um, and so I heard Roshan's story, was deeply moved by it, really felt for her. But it also reminded me of Slain Girl, yeah. which happened probably seven or eight years ago now, right? was horrendous on every level. I'm not going to go into the specifics of it because I think people know. Um, and that was really only tackled in any meaningful way because it transpired the young woman in question was, was underage and that led to the, the images in question been taken down. Um, but I just thought to myself, what has happened in the last seven years that we culturally, legally at that point as well, because the laws hadn't been enacted at that stage, are still in the place where these technologies that have given us so much in terms of connecting us to each other wouldn't have wanted to have been without them during the pandemic and yet they have this hugely destructive potential for women how are we still in this place that this can happen yeah. and there's so many you know there's so many dimensions to these stories as well Caroline as you know there is the as, as you were describing there the social and historical we have these really incredible new phones and machines and platforms um, and we think of them as new, and in some ways they are, but often the logics behind them are governed by the same forces and the same assumptions and the same stereotypes that have haunted women and other minorities for millennia. And what you get then is a kind of perfect storm where you've these powerful new technologies sold to us as progressive as they can be, depending on how you use them, meeting then with cultural norms that really have not evolved anywhere near close to where they should be. And so you get a situation where you have the shaming that has always characterized um, even the assumption that a woman is being sexual and has definitely characterized situations where she's definitely being sexual. Um, and that has found new expression and new amplification and new ways of disciplining women through these technologies. And so you, when you get a story like Roshin's and, and lots of others that I talk about in the book, the, the reaction is not, isn't it terrible that somebody has been violated in this way? And isn't it terrible that people are sharing this material? And isn't it terrible that these technologies have been designed in such a way and controlled in such a way that the sharing goes on, you know, very easily without any restriction to what was she thinking? Why does she do that? You know, so this, and we, we, we know, we, we know those assumptions. We know those judgments because again, there is old, <laughs> there is old. So old as time. <laughs> yeah, the old as time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you, um, so, so that kind of, those moments, I think are one of the main motivators behind why I wrote this book, because I was doing a PhD and as you know, PhD is a very specific thing. And as I was doing, I was, I was amassing all of this material that wasn't quite right for the PhD, but it really spoke to instance like the ones we're chatting about now. And I was just like, yeah, there's something here. And when I, when I began to sit down and kind of put it together, it basically, well, it, it didn't take much, Caroline. No, really like, <laughs> this Imagine. is the landscape. Yeah. Here is the landscape. This is what we are trying to, to navigate. And of course, the idea is this stuff is just frivolous. Um, it's just girls on the internet, you know, whatever. Um, and and sometimes it is, but a lot of the times it isn't. There's a real dark side to all of this. There, There is, because it's like, like you said, that, that victim blaming and shaming has gone on for a very long time. I mean, we, we live in a country where the Magdalene Laundries existed and, you know, you were locked up and for the smallest of crimes and you were blamed for it and that was it and you know like victim blaming is absolutely nothing new but like you're saying in the book there's also we, we have now with social media we have victim blaming combined with a predatory gaze online and it's like like as a sex educator on instagram like i can't even mention the word sex but yet we can put up image-based abuse we can put up all this horrific stuff but yeah i can't say sex like you know and so it's it's like where what, tell, tell us a bit more about that predatory gaze because I think that's a really 
interesting expression because we talk a lot about the male gaze and how people mm. see themselves through male eyes but the predatory gaze is something of an interesting nuance of of power and misogyny wrapped up in that little almost a cute expression if it wasn't what it was <laughs> yeah yeah I mean predator it's one of those words that just kind of makes you um shift uncomfortably in your seat um because you don't like to think that um be, be more comfortable to associate it just simply with the animal kingdom and not human beings. But of course, we know that that's um, sadly not the case. There's power in looking is the quote that I opened the book with from Bell Hooks. And she's bang on the money with that. And a lot of feminist gaze theory talks about the way looking is structured in our society, because not everyone gets to look and be looked at on the same terms. And of course, that was one of the big appeals of, of technologies and social media. Suddenly you could look and you could create and you could represent yourself. And that's massive for so many people who've never really seen themselves represented meaningfully in the mainstream. But along with that, you enable other types of gazing, one of which is this kind of predatory type of gazing. And this type of gazing is not about being progressive. It is about pursuit and shaming um stalking um control and that control dynamic is a really interesting one because again one of the things that makes these technologies so appealing to people is the idea that you can control your image what we tend to dwell less on until we're forced to have to grapple with it is the way we can be controlled through this visibility so somebody can take our image and use it in ways we never had intended. And we have little to no control over getting that image back or controlling what happens around the reception of that image in the hands of somebody who uses it um, in uncharitable ways, to put it mildly. Yeah, very mildly, unfortunately. But in that, there's, you know, you reminded me of, of the, the fappening, which, you know, you talk about in the book as well, which is, I hate even using that term. Like, it was just a massive, it sounds cool. It was like the old word for image-based abuse, the revenge porn. It's cool. It's entertainment. The fappening mm. almost sounds cute if you think about it. But like you said, like, there's power in, in looking, but there's also power in language and, and kind of renaming that and I know when that happened and this you know for anyone who doesn't know it was like a massive hack into celebrities iClouds and um private phones and then their nudes got released and one of them was Jennifer Lawrence and she was that was probably one of the first times I heard anyone talking about being a victim of this and she named it as a sexual assault and I think mm -hmm. for a lot of people that was maybe one of the first times they had they would consider something like that being sexual assault because before that we were like oh Paris Hilton and her sex tape and Kim Kardashian and her sex tape and like Paris Hilton has now come out and said like she didn't consent to that sexual act but she also didn't consent to the tape being released and we just used it as this big joke you know we were like oh she's so silly like she's so slutty like this is what fame whores do and all this kind of thing and it's like how like, how does that fit into the whole predatory gaze and that community of people who enjoy stealing those images of women? Let's call a spade a spade because they, they weren't stealing male celebrities images as far mm -hmm. as I know. So what, what that community around it is just seems like an odd place to be. Yeah, I think and those are great examples. And I'll tell you why, because it, they they begin um those images come from a particular point in time just before the arrival of social media when celebrity gossip magazines were the order of the day and they were paying huge money to the paparazzi to get those kinds of you know um videos um and of course you know um somebody's in the news a lot recently for very sad reasons britney spears the upskirting that went on there all that kind of stuff like really really abhorrent but as you say caroline totally public people lapped it up they bought those magazines, they downloaded those videos. You know, this was an industry in the same way that it's an industry now. But while the, the, the magazines and so on have declined, what has risen in its place with social media has risen in its place. And this has taken objectification to a whole other level. So where you would have, you know, those magazines, horrible as they were, the magazines came and they went. But when you have the internet, you have an archive that never ends. And when you have a smartphone, 
you have the means of creating images and sharing images and circulating images in a way that was unimaginable even 10 years ago. And so if you are someone who um, has a desire to control women and hurt women, and obviously those people are a minority, but they are out there, they are no longer isolated. They're not isolated by the technology. They're not isolated in terms of a community because they can find people online. And I think we like to think, and there's an element of this is true, is that those type of predators are confined to kind of the underbelly of the internet, right? And to a large degree, yes, they are. They hang out on the outer fringes, do whatever it is they do, and we're quite happy that they stay there. However, and I hated having to do this, but it was necessary for the book. If you take hashtags like Creepshot, and you go to the main street of the internet. So we're talking, I went to Twitter, right? Hardly the fringes. For some people, Twitter basically is the internet. And you search it. You're in for a nasty surprise because I certainly was. Because I think, I assume, I think a lot of us do, that the main street of the internet is just kept that bit better than the rest of it. That's not true. If, well, I know when I searched Creepshot, um, down through Twitter on the main street of the internet, I saw videos of women completely unaware that they were being filmed on the beach, socializing, shopping. And when I say filmed, I mean up close shots of various parts of their anatomy. I mean, the predator gaze is the male gaze on steroids. It's the male gaze gifted a whole new suite of techniques. Um, and you know, even the use of the hashtag, is there are people following this conversation? This is what they do for kicks. This is fun. Um, and in the aftermath of the fappening, you know, there, there was kind of, you know, a lot of reporting done on the natures of the communities, the online communities where these images had first materialized and then shared and all the rest of it. And what unites it all um, is a perspective that is just completely dehumanizing. Women are trophies their playthings and it doesn't matter whether they're high profile women or the girl next door that's irrelevant what it's about is basically creating glorified um playing cards that you can swap with your friends online and discuss online and if you feel like uh, potentially ruin somebody's life with if the image is sensitive and I and it's really hard you know to talk about this without sounding like a bit of a conspiracy theorist and I should emphasize this is a minority although they can sound incredibly loud and be incredibly powerful because of the tools that the technology gives them but this the, the potential here when you think about how even the most powerful women in the world still can't get those images really and truly removed off the internet from the fappening, right? What, you know, what does that mean then for ordinary girls and women? Those are huge, huge questions. And I don't think that we're anywhere near where we need to be yet. Oh no, absolutely them. not. We're miles away. Like we're still trying to get conversations about sexual violence into secondary schools, you know, and, and things like that. And, and, having people name it as abuse it has been one step forward but it's still getting out there because there's you know there's pretty much no research in Ireland um as far as I know on image-based abuse as in academic long-term stuff um but in the UK they looked at Jessica Ringrose she was looking at um how girls and boys as in teenagers would share nudes and stuff as like just social currency and they were like it just is and like trying to explain to them that this is actually sexually explicit images of children and is highly illegal they just and and like you know is connected to sexual violence they just wouldn't see it like that so there's yeah unfortunately a long way to go with um the misogyny education aspect of things as well but I want to pick up on something you said about like the high profile nature of people and they can't control the internet either but you know we have several um you know we've uh, for, for non-Irish um, listeners we had a mayor of Dublin who um had Chinese heritage and she had tons of abuse for her whole um term but you also mentioned in the book about politicians sports players who receive constant harassment and, and misogyny online so you know how do people manage that level of like trying to enhance your career but also 
you know dealing with the constant harassment and abuse and like you can't even put up a tweet without you know a pile of people waiting to jump on you maybe on that yeah I think with all those things Caroline there's a, le- there's a level of it depends on the person like some people w- will vacate the platform entirely and I can completely they shouldn't have to can I just say and it reflect it's something we should all be concerned about because if our social media spaces are predominantly acting like a public sphere where important conversations are happening, then that is, you know, that's like saying that somebody can't participate in a protest or in a, in a gathering in the offline world that they have to vacate it because of some aspect of their identity. That we wouldn't stand for that. We would, we would, we would see that type of um, treatment or movement as been an infringement on everyone's rights, right? Because people need to be able to assemble and access spaces and so on. And so when that happens online, um, some people are, are, you know, they can stick it out. Um, some people in, leave entirely. Um, I talk about Diane Abbott, who is, pro- is probably, you know, a very high profile politician in the UK, puts up with a horrendous level of abuse, is still there um, and has been there for a long time. And I'm sure she's not going anywhere anytime soon. But what all of this, I think, for me, culminates in is typical double standard that women have been subjected to ever since they tried to either enter the public sphere or enter a domain traditionally reserved for men, whether they're politicians or artists, whatever the case may be. It puts women in a position where not only do they have to do job, whatever that job may entail, they also have to do the job of managing expectations around their gender. Um, And that's pretty tiring. And it's insulting. Sometimes it's really infantilizing. And it's a game that you are forced to play, even though you never set the rules. And so you get the situation in social media where increasingly now for people in the public eye, having some kind of presence is non-negotiable. We're dealing with however many hundreds of years of patriarchy. It ha- you know, it's getting better, but its vestiges are still there. And yet we have technologies that instead of, for example, at the design stage saying, you know what, if women use them like this, the world being what it is, it's probably going to be a cohort of people that behave like this. So we're going to build in this function. We're going to put in this filter. We're going to have thousands of people moderating these sites every single day, and we're going to properly support them to do that. So instead of kind of, you know, taking a sober, diverse understanding of the world as it is depending on how you move through it at the design stage rather than when these platforms are out in the wild and this abuse is happening and the individual the woman is like what do I do what how do I manage this you don't get into that situation in the first place and I'm not talking about you take why should we have to deal with this you know absolutely and I, and, yeah. do you know and, and, I, and I'm not talking here either about you know running away from the cut and thrust of politics being afraid of debate, not being um, criticised because of your policies or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about some idiot doxing you, threatening to rape you, threatening your children. These are all things that women in the public eye have to put up with regularly. Yeah. Um, and I think most reasonable people can see that line in the sand. You know, you can, you can absolutely have your free speech while protecting human dignity because you would never have to tolerate that in the offline world so why why do we have to put up with it in the on, in, in the online world yeah and you know and shock. you know what's good for women in this case is also good for everybody else because no one should have to deal with that level of vitriol for stepping on to a platform and maybe voicing an opinion or tr- you know trying to do their job or whatever it is yeah. like this visibility that we've been sold can be great but that's far too high a price to pay. Yeah, and it is, yeah, very high cost. Like, it really struck me, uh, and this, I had to read this passage a few times because the rage kind of took over and <laughs> everything. That happened quite a lot in the book, by the way. But um, oh. this quote, it's page um, 141, if anyone wants to share my rage. Um, this is many of those active on these sites. So it's talking about um, like the online communities, like the red pill communities and just the general kind of, um corners of misogyny of the internet so many of those active in these sites do not just want to challenge or ridicule women they want to vac- 
They want them to vacate the internet entirely. At the very least, the blossoming of these misogynistic cultures impacts women's abilities to access these new digital public spaces, to participate in online life and to express themselves. At the worst, it causes emotional and or physical harms, reputational damage and what Emma A. James calls economic vandalism, where women miss out on career opportunities, cannot work or are forced to retreat from the internet, harming them financially, see careers in journalism, for example. And like that, like you nailed that. You absolutely nailed that. That like I know many people because of the abuse they got, they drop out of online and they miss out then on like you know in this case they, they would have been maybe PhD students so they miss out on seeing like calls for conferences to present their work at or you know jobs that come up or that networking aspect which is crucial for a lot of people and also if you are a woman on the internet working in a certain area it's nice to connect with your colleagues but like you're saying in that paragraph it's like they do not they want them to vacate the internet entirely that's yeah. like it's quite a dramatic statement, but I think for a lot of people that is actually really true. And mm-hmm. like, I just, that mindset is just so toxic. Yeah, there's a sense, and just as I'm, I'm talking this out loud, Caroline, I wonder if this is tied to a wider set of, of grievances at changes in the Western world that I think are feeding into the kind of dynamics that we see in these in misogynistic communities. But there's a sense that the internet used to belong to them. And then as the internet became more kind of, quote unquote, you know, accessible or user friendly and the rise of social media and all of these things that um, so-called normies or, you know, um, ordinary people, people who aren't or who weren't heavily online or involved in these communities somehow infiltrated and took over. And there's this resentment and there's particular resentment for women. Um, Surprise, surprise. Um, So there is that um, element of again control and and um this is my place and my space and you will you shall not pass you know which I find absolutely fascinating because I mean the last time I checked the internet's a pretty big place um and it doesn't show, show any signs of reducing inside quite the opposite um and it's but it's it, it it's about it's about power though it's about asserting that you're in a space and that you will control how the space operates um and you will lay down markers um and it would be funny if it wasn't so scary yeah um you know it, it, it ma jane's work is absolutely fantastic she's one of the um kind of foremost scholars with regard to online misogyny and how it manifests and you know speaking to her from the book she's just i mean she just emphasizes over and over um the way that well-meaning but like utterly ineffective advice like just like you know the scenarios you're describing there just you know step back from the internet you know take a break you know and and by the way I, I, I should make a distinction here I'm not talking about stepping back or taking a break from the internet for your own personal reasons to figure out how best to use these technologies that that can be a worthwhile endeavor I'm talking about stepping back because you're frightened or you've been abused, or you're you're facing um a, you know um a deluge of vitriol every time you log in, and there's literally no one there to help you through that, and there's no kind of support that you can access. That isn't fair. Like saying to somebody in that situation, "Oh, just log off," completely ignores what you're describing, which is the way the internet now functions as a public good, as a career tool, as a place you go shopping, as a place you go socializing. I mean, the idea that you would say to somebody during the pandemic, for example, just log off. Why, you know, why do you need to be on there anyway? It's like, well, li- are we are living online. Yeah, this is, this absolutely. is now, yeah. you know, and I think there's I think there's so many sections in societies who think of the Internet as this newfangled thing, like like a, an indulgence that people um enjoy and they probably spend too much time on and so when people come to them young people go to them and go I'm having this problem with the internet it's like well just log off just turn it off and you're going that is it's well-intentioned just like don't feed the trolls is well-intentioned but if the troll is actually an army or a very dedicated predatory type it doesn't matter whether you feed them or not. That is not going to fundamentally solve the situation. Absolutely. Um, and I think that 
kind of mindset needs to change as well. I think sometimes it does break into public consciousness and people are like, God, that's really awful. And you're like, yeah, it yeah. is really Thanks awful. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is really awful. Especially if it's like international. So there's no break even during the night because then the international people are on and on different time zones. So it's like you're waking up to all that kind of stuff and you're starting your day. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be done in, in that kind of aspect. But I, I want to move us on to the idea of selfies and you, you spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about selfies and selfies are you know relatively new ph- phenomenon and it's like the control of women's images was generally like you know male painters and you know painting women and they were hung in ga- galleries which were sometimes only open to men so now it's an interesting world where women can control their image which like we said at the start is you know potentially amazing but then we don't know um who what people do with those images and stuff like that but you also talk about um there's an is she Australian the influencer um Asina O'Neill and she wrote yeah. about taking about fifty selfies and filtering them on several apps you know like it's that effort that goes through them and she said it's just to find social approval and she stepped offline because it was just destroying her mental health but there you know you also talk about like that link between like selfies social media and balancing being visible online and those feelings of empowerment through that visibility but then also the reality then of being judged for taking selfie and being called a narcissist like where do you start making sense of all that mess behind the one word selfie wow you caroline you really you took it all in there because it is (laughs) how could the simple act of taking a photograph of yourself become so loaded um well, because there's women involved and there's women, there, there's images of women, which have always been a source of huge cultural fascination and have made a lot of people very, very rich and very, very powerful, usually men, um, not the women concerned. Um, and now we've had this cultural upheaval, massive, we're in the middle of it still, huge change to our communication system. And part of that is, is women have the ability now to create their own images as never before. And of course, anybody who knows anything about the power of representation will, of course, acknowledge that that's all for the good, right? But this representation plays out on platforms that belong to some of the biggest corporations that the planet has ever seen. So we need to be a bit more tempered about how radical any of this really has the potential to be because the likes of algorithms and so on do a very good job of determining visibility who gets to be seen along lines that are very familiar it's a lot of fair-skinned skinny women who are very conventionally attractive at the upper echelons of instagram fame I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> you know, it's 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 Definitely partly the way, the, right? Um, it's partly the way these technologies are designed. It's partly the way um, images are consumed. But the, the the tension for me, what I find fascinating, is if you go to Instagram's about page, it will wax lyrical about you, everybody being welcome and everybody getting to express themselves and be seen. And, and oh, this, this all sounds great. Fantastic. Bring like a on. little utopia. <laughs> oh, uh, let me in. Who wouldn't want, who wouldn't <laughs> want to be seen? This place sounds great. But in reality, the filtering that we're encouraged to do to our bodies is, is also been done to our very selves. If we don't fit into what is a very traditional notion of of the kinds of people who get seen and the kinds of people who don't so if you're if you're a bigger body person if you're a dark-skinned person if you're a non-binary person if you're someone who isn't straightforwardly heterosexual in the way that, that that can be interpreted easily by the algorithm and so on and so on and so on you will find yourself nudged out of the way denied that visibility while people who come as close to violating the terms of service as I think I've ever seen in the forms of people like the Kardashian, right? They can be really, really provocative on there. It doesn't affect their visibility. In fact, I think it, it probably adds to their visibility. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So there's a huge double standard mm. at play there. And, um, I'm, you know, I, I talk to people who are for the book who are kind of at the forefront of pushing these technologies to own up 
to what how this happens like why 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 are my images taken down or why are they suddenly not getting as much engagement and you know Caroline it's really hard to get a straight answer it's the lack of transparency and add to that now the fact that so many people are trying to make their living on these platforms that's very true that yeah leaves yeah. them so vulnerable and of course a lot of these um people trying to make their living they're not Kardashian you know that this is this is keeping the lights on stuff and they're totally at the mercy they're relying on this visibility to pay the bills and they're not entirely sure even though they're creating this content that keeps Instagram on the road they actually don't know how that visibility is governed or if they will be allowed to be visible yeah which is true kind of scary absolutely and I know like the, you know there's so many sex workers who are skirting that line and are constantly battling for visibility and there's a lot of sex workers who need it for work to put food on the table and yeah you know their Kardashians will, will get away with that but we'll come back to Kardashians in a second but I just again want to read out this other paragraph that I think absolutely nails it and this is um again talking about yeah, like you said, it's like a utopia. Instagram sounds amazing, but it's only for the chosen few, essentially. So this is from um, page 101. So it's saying from birth to marriage to children, from gynecological appointments to fam familial, I can never say it properly, um, histronics to sex to the home, formerly out of sight experiences are rendered broadcastable, shareable, commodifiable and supremely visible so long as they prescribe to hyperglam aesthetics where realness is represented by millionaires and billionaires who live in mansions and resemble supermodels. So like you said with that, like the Kardashians get away with, I was going to say murder, but they probably almost could get away with murder. Um, they can do anything basically. And it seems like once they do it, it's okay. But if the regular everyday person on the street tries to do it, it doesn't work. Like, you know, you, you talk in, in the book as well about um, examples of people who showed like a tiny bit of pubic hair or nipples and they're off straight away but yeah the Kardashians can get away with it like totally totally and they're just exactly and there's this really bizarre almost puritan streak built into the moderation and, and the algorithms and, and the assumption is immediately the pubic hair a nipple um non-normative bodies are immediately hypersexual and immediately deviant and so and you're and you're going but pubic hair can simply be pubic hair a nipple can simply be a nipple why should a content creator be responsible for the cultural assumptions that are projected on to their content so like you look at um, one of the examples i talk about is petra collins who had her <laughs> incurred <laughs> the wrath of Instagram for putting up a shot of herself um just, just her crotch area um like in in a very decent sized pair of knickers I have to say there was nothing skimpy about them they were positively functional they just happened to have a bit of pubic hair sticking out the size of them and this could not stand Caroline this had to come down you have to know? protect people from such images oh <laughs> my god <laughs> they're going to know that everything is airbrushed and people don't actually look like that oh my god I just like I'm laughing but there is something kind of you know uh, this this notion of of dirtiness of of um unruly bodies you know bodies that are outside the norm of course the irony is that's entirely normal pubic hair is entirely normal what's not normal is the crazy visual culture that we've lived with for so long that makes the most natural things in the world appear to be abnormal um and so and and no with, with ruby cowering and her period shots which are beautiful in their mundanity representing something that you know so many people go through on a regular basis and yet they are insulted by stupid acts with blue liquid being waved at them every time they turn on the television i'm being a bit extreme here but you, you understand what i'm saying it's like people naturally use instagram to produce visual languages that they don't get in other places because they haven't had the power to produce yeah. those kinds of representations before. I, I actually don't think you're being extreme there because oh, like I think there's more people who've had their pubic hair hanging out of their knickers than look <laughs> like what they look like online Amen, in real sister. life so you know we've all been there I you know probably us two sitting here right now have a bit of stray hairs going Absolutely. on <laughs> like that's it's a normal. pandemic 
Caroline. That's it. You know, like who who cares at the moment? But like, you know, you talk a bit in the book as well about like the Kardashian industrial complex. And I think that's a fascinating phrase. (laughs) And we'll dive into that. But the idea of like, you know, like you said there, somebody's are not allowed to be online. And there's been so many um, plus size black women who've said, I get my content taken down constantly. And so it seems like like there's racism involved there as well. But blackfishing is allowed. So the Kardashians can like legitimately be accused of blackfishing quite a lot. And apparently that's okay. And they can be hypersexual and that's okay. But a, a black woman who's like a regular woman, you know, and just putting up those images is not allowed to exist. But the Kardashians are because it's money. Yeah. Like I, I write about a, a black um, um, British plus size blogger um, who put up the most, I, I think it was a beautiful series of image it was it was I think the it was called um like a confidence shoot for this this particular photographer um I thought the images were really beautiful it was just her sitting with her arms around her chest kind of in quiet contemplation really lovely and again not the type of um image that you would necessarily see in the pages of a glossy magazine and all the more important because you don't see them and they were taken down they were taken down again and again and again um at the same time because I remember thinking to myself as this was unfolding I was like I wonder what the Kardashians are up to and I checked out Kylie Jenner's page and Kylie Jenner is in touch she's a free person she can, put whatever, she can put up whatever she wants but she had a shot of herself in a very similar pose but far far more provocative and it went unremarked she probably got a couple of hundred thousand likes I don't know but there was no kerfuffle over it you know and eventually um, the images that had been taken down by this British blogger were reinstated, but they were only reinstated because fair play to her. She didn't let it go and she developed a campaign around it and, and the Guardian slash the Observer newspaper took it on and really championed it um, and Instagram couldn't ignore it. So they had to, you know, they had to address it. And I think they actually changed their policy because of the fallout around it, which is good. But Caroline, how many people does that happen to that we never hear about? Yeah, we can't all mount campaigns and, and stuff like that, you know, and yeah. especially also like black people or minorities don't have the privilege of being listened to in a lot of like white owned spaces as well. So, you know, that yeah. there is that element too of silence in there. Yeah, and, and, but also and there's absolutely that. And, th- and then there's the question as well of what else are we not seeing? Like what else? It, the reason we knew that that happened was because it happened in real time and it was a big enough platform to draw people's attention to it. What else has been denied visibility? What else has been taken down and removed and people don't know? It's, these platforms have huge, huge power to shape our sense of what's normal or to distort it. Um, and I think that's something we should all be mindful of and we should call it out when we see it. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a bit too close to um, Big Brother for my liking. Absolutely. And when leaving, you know, it's it's just so not real. Like the Kardashians themselves, while we're on the, the subject, like they edit their photos to bits and they're they're naturally like quite beautiful, although some may have gone a little bit too far now with the plastic surgery aspect. But like, you know, naturally not naturally, but like they, they've had a lot of help, but you know, beautiful without the filters, shall we say. Um, but the rest of us, like, you know, then it means that like there's a lot of people out there who are constantly editing photos and they're going like that that woman um I seen it, she, she said I took about fifty selfies and we see that. We see people, you know, take, 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 and then you're swiping through and you're like, none of these are good enough to go online to get the likes. And then you have people who feel quite depressed. They're like, oh that photo only got you know, whatever amount of likes and they'll, you know, feel pretty bad about themselves as a result. So it's like, you know, the selfie is viewed as being empowering, but that doesn't sound too empowering. It actually just kind of sounds exhausting. But, you know, at the same time, it's also so familiar to lots of people. Yeah, I think that is the classic, the classic catch 22. And we've always had it in terms of, you know, do you do you play the game of femininity? and you know hope to win some kind of reward from it for it or do you reject it or how like how do you approach the fact that that putting on femininity has always involved something of the specular it's always it's such a visual process and now we do it increasingly through technologies that present themselves as neutral they are not neutral those filters are not neutral those editing suites that you're offered so not neutral they are bogged down with all kinds of cultural assumptions 
about what it is to be beautiful and those support some ideas of personhood and they absolutely outlaw others and they encourage us you know when we talk about surveillance Caroline we we talk about it in relation to the state in relation to companies as well we should 100% but these technologies are also encouraging us to survey ourselves to forensically pick apart ourselves so we're once advertising fragmented the female body to sell things now we're being encouraged to fragment ourselves from our eyebrows to our noses to our lips to our backsides to whatever it is and we've got this this new way of seeing ourselves in the world that has the capacity to be more critical than anything we've dreamt up before and you're right it doesn't stop there because (laughs) that's just taking the image then you put the image on the internet so no wonder it is so emotionally naughty because when you grow up in a culture that puts such emphasis on a you know a worth being tied to your appearance there's a real allure in technologies that say to you aha just wave this magic wand baby you can have it all and for a moment you can maybe you're going to know that that's not really you and if you put it on the internet you're going to know that that's not really you and that that feeling that disconnection between yourself and the self that you're trying to build online I think we're only beginning to, uh, to unpack and understand what that tension is doing to us because yeah. it's not something we've ever had to deal with to no. the same degree before. Absolutely so when, not. Yeah. So when people are like, oh, the selfie, I'm like, I don't know. Have you actually talked to people who are heavily invested in this, you know, these practices? You might be surprised. Mm. And it's also a way to really mock women as well, like particularly women, um, but also maybe, you know, like maybe the gay community as well for doing things like, oh, duck face, you know, when you're posing and you're, you're kind of pouting and stuff like and that was used as like a tool of oh, stupid women. Look at the stupid faces they're pulling for their stupid selfies. How stupid are they? Yeah. And it was just like, Jesus, it's vicious. But yet, like they're told you have to do this in order to get social capital, in order to be popular, in order to be pretty or be beautiful. But you're also called stupid at the same time for taking part in it. But it's like, how are we expecting, you know, teenagers and young people to have all that critical media literacy skills? Like most adults don't have them anyway. Like you're throwing a 14 year old to the wolves, basically. Yes. And I, I mean, that's one that was a real motivation behind the, the visibility trap as well was because, you know, yourself in academia, you ha, you, you're lucky to be kind of up close with with a lot of these new ideas, new ways of thinking. But you can't wait when you're 14. We can't even wait. We're, we're, we've been living with this stuff for 10 years or, or more, you know, and it's um, and, and you're so right about, about um, that idea of creating categories that exist to be ridiculed. And Burns research into the selfie, which I quote in the book, she does a fantastic job of looking at the way that the category of selfie taker was positioned as young women. Like under the guise of talking about, you know, this this new practice. But really, it was about talking about young women. And judging young women, which we never tire of doing. So you've got this category of called the selfie taker. And it just so happens to be young women. And of course, then you can have this whole judgmental, ridiculing cultural conversation around these um, silly, narcissistic, time-wasting young women. Yet there are, when you look into it, a lot of very reasonable and logical reasons why young women would be drawn to the practice of a selfie. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, when you're told that's the only value you have as a young person, of course you would go and and do that. I wonder how that argument is changing now. It's something like maybe TikTok, maybe where it's, you know, the Instagram is very well before reels on Instagram. It was very passive. It was like, there's my picture. That's it. But TikTok now is like, okay, but now you have to like do the latest dance craze and now you have to do, you know, whatever the, the challenges are and stuff like that. So you're no longer like, here I am looking pretty. Now mm. I also have to like keep up to date, like straight away with all these challenges and stuff like that. Like, how does that fit into the surveillance part? Because it's an edit- added dimension now that we have to do. I think when immediately when you mentioned TikTok, I think of its origins in China. And when you say surveillance, that's immediately <laughs> what I think of there. I'm like, oh God, I don't know. Um, TikTok is really interesting because it's very much its own thing. But I, you know, I, I think the research will bear it out in a couple of years, you know, what kind of I know I mentioned in the book a, a research by um a, a report, I should say, by an American news organization called The Intercept. 
that found what they said was evidence that TikTok had been um, altering its feed to keep what they deemed ugly and poor people out of appearing in the the feed. So as to keep more people clicking in so the content will be of a certain standard to ensure that, you know, the platform kept growing. To my mind, that doesn't bode well. Um, That doesn't bode well at all. Um, But I also think no more than Instagram. I'm like, you platforms are so lucky that there's so much creativity out there like you see this is the thing that we forget like we bring the value if we didn't want to look and if we didn't want to share ourselves and if we didn't want that vile you know approval and, and all the rest of it we would have no use for instagram or facebook or tiktok or any of these things and so we because of how much labor and emotion and creativity people put into these things I don't think it's unreasonable that they should treat them (laughs) better and they should be designed in such a way that doesn't encourage you to spy on yourself or spy on other people or that steals your data in nefarious ways or um, leaves you open to abuse. Um, I think these technologies have tapped into something that that is profoundly human and that connects us to one another and I think that's a great thing but they're letting us down and they could be better because they're made by people so they can be remade mm-hmm. absolutely I, I think there's there's going to be an interesting growth in like you know women owned um dating apps and and social media sites and things like this and minority owned and I think that may be a good thing hopefully down the line but time will tell on that aspect of things um Mary it's been fantastic the book is fantastic congratulations I think it's very timely like you said after like a year and a half of just living online and and what that did to us and things like that um so it's fantastic where can people find your book if they want to pick it up it's in all good bookshops, Caroline, and it's you can get it on New Island's website as well, so newisland.ie, and you can find me on Twitter, Ms. Mary McGill um, is my handle, MS for Ms. Brilliant. Listen, Mary, thank you so much. And I think, you know, I'd urge everyone to go out and read it because like, yeah, we are social creatures and we do exist online. And it's just nice to maybe just learn a little bit more about what that actually means and remind ourselves it's not us, it's the systems and money and capitalism and all those nefarious kind of things. So (laughs) always. Thank you, Caroline. Brilliant. Thanks, Amel. And thanks to all my listeners. Um, Like I said, I do really encourage people to go out and read the book. I, you know, I never get paid for these kind of things. I only review and chat to the authors that I actually really like and the books I genuinely like and genuinely read. So it's not just empty promises or empty promo. So please do go out and grab a copy if you can. And like I said, at the top of the hour, if you want to reach out, the Instagram handle and Twitter handle is at Glow West Podcast if you want to shoot me a line. And I'll chat to you next week.